We're going to be reading God's Word now, and um, we're reading from 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going to continue our Peter theme, and Jackie's going to be reading that for us right now. Good morning, everyone. Okay, so starting from verse 11. Beloved, I urge you, sojourners and exiles, to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak of you, uh, when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether it be to the emperor, or in our case the king, as supreme, or to governors as sent by him to punish those who do evil and to praise those who do good. But this is the will of God, that by doing good, you should put to silence the ignorance of foolish people. Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Honour everyone, love the brotherhood, fear God, honour the king. Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. For this is a gracious thing, when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if, you, if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. Yes, and I might just add that last verse. It's my mistake. I, if you've got your Bibles open, keep them open. That's my um uh, recommendation for this morning we don't have all the scriptures up on a, on a powerpoint as normal so and we are going to refer to some of those scriptures every now and then so please keep your phones or your bibles open as we go and that last verse says for you were straying like sheep but now you've returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls so we've been going through this short series on, in the first letter of peter um, and we've called it you are god's people because that's who we are. We're God's people, the church, if you like. So again, encouragement to keep your Bibles open. Peter is, uh, just as a quick catch up for those of you that haven't been following it, Peter's writing to encourage the followers of Christ, the church, in five provinces in Asia Minor, which is modern day Turkey. Um, these are Roman provinces. And it'll be, this is really important for us to know for today's subject anyway. These are Roman provinces, so they're Roman ruled. And, and Roman rule was total. Uh, Roman rule wasn't just they brought in some laws and that. It was the, the values of society, the ethics and how everything worked um, in everything. 
Romans came, when they took over a place, they actually took over and it was to mirror Rome exactly in the way it ran its laws, in the way it ran its ethics, its everything. So it's important for us to know that Paul, Peter was writing to these guys that were in these Roman colonies. And being a follower of Jesus or being a follower of the way that was definitely in contrast to the Roman way. So you can imagine life was really hard for them. Peter knows this. And while he begins in the first letter of Peter with this magnificent encouragement, and we talked about that some weeks back, he means to continue on with some strong exhortations because he knows that it's absolutely no accident that they're God's people there. And he knows it's not, there's no accident that they're God's people then, right at that time. He knows that they're there and they're there then for a reason. And I think that's a good thought for us to keep in mind as we look at this today. And as we look through Peter, in fact, he's already addressed them as individuals. Um, he's been super encouraging them. Uh, and we talked about that a few weeks ago with this living hope for this, for this inheritance that would never, never perish or, or spoil. He's also challenged them. Um, he's challenged them. They've got to love each other, that, that they needed to love each other as a body. And last time, I spoke, we looked at how Peter was helping them to see how they needed each other. You know, following was never meant to be just about our personal journey. Uh, the body, God's people, was critical. And this is what Peter wanted them to understand then. He said that they were being built, and even though they were all different, they were being built into a house. And that building was not only to represent God, it was definitely supposed to do that but it was anchored and given its structural integrity by Jesus. And remember, we talked about that cornerstone, the way the structural integrity is, is maintained or built into a house um, by that cornerstone, and Jesus was that cornerstone. And the reason for that was not so that they could be this tidy, strong house and stand against everything that came in their way, but actually it was outward. It was so that they would declare the excellencies of God that the gospel, if you like, might be shown through them, through this house, through these people, what the gospel is and, and how it looks and, and how it plays out. And Peter wants them to understand how God's people represent God in the midst of where they're at. Remember, they're in a difficult place and a difficult time, but he wants them to know how they, how they can represent God in the midst of that. Where we are today... In Peter, it wasn't planned for this time and the time that we're in at the moment. But maybe it's no accident as I was thinking about it. Because Peter now turns his attention to how that plays out. How does that work? How do you actually, in a, in a place where, where the values and everything is so different, how do I actually, in the midst of the Roman Empire, how can this happen? How can we declare the excellencies? How can they represent God? How can... God get a good rep um, or how can God look good? He wants them to be aware of a few things. What do they need to be aware of? Well, he's just reminded them that they're chosen, royal and holy. And we talked about that last time. But he's also reminded them that they're God's possession, that they're owned by God, that they belong uh, to the family of God, but they're owned by God. And that this is so they can declare who God is, where they are. The next two verses, our first two verses, um, are key verses for this section. And this is the key. He starts with this and then he's going to explain how and why. Those two verses, verse 11 and 12, he says, Behold, 
I urge you as sojourners. Sojourners is an old word for passes through or travelers, if you like, people on a journey. They're, they're not staying there forever, that they're going somewhere. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, people that don't really belong, that this isn't your home, to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. So that's his kind of intro. This is, his, this is what he wants to say to them, and he's going to talk to them about how. He'll go on to explain how. And when you look at that, you know, keep your con conduct amongst Gentiles honourable, so that when they speak against you as evildoers, I wondered what that meant. And if you're wondering what that meant, in Roman Empire, if you spoke against or if your ethics or values or anything were against the Roman way, you were an evildoer. You were defined as an evildoer. Unless you completely adopted the Roman understanding of truth, of values, and, and the way that you operate, then you were an evildoer. So you can imagine the Romans called them evildoers. And that's why Peter says, when they speak against you as evildoers, They'll see your good behaviour and they'll glorify God. In this environment, as exiles on the journey, how do you make sure that God gets the glory? How do you make sure that God looks good? Considering it's really challenging in a number of ways. There's a few battles for them as we read on. You know, the first one is the battle of personal sinful tendencies, the passions of the flesh, Peter calls them. And those things can misdisplay God to those around them, can't they? Now, those things are kind of like normal sin, I guess the normal things that we could think of, the passions of the flesh, the things that we shouldn't be doing, that, that if people, you know, if we said we were Christians and they saw us doing that, they think, well, that's not very good. So it would have included those things. But he's also talking about pride, feeling better than another. And I'll explain that a little bit as we go. So the battle of personal sinful tendencies was a battle for them. The next battle was the battle of being subject to and obeying a Roman system, a Roman system of unjust rulers, a Roman system of persecution, of opposition uh, to what they knew to be true, uh, a Roman system that ridiculed them, you know, punishment for being a follower, uh, made fun of and ridiculed for what you believe because of their faith, unequal treatment, there was not much justice. Laws that, that feel or that even seem unjust and perhaps, well, not necessary to follow because they're not just. Um, needing to give respect to authorities because of their position, but in my humble opinion, they might think it's not deserved. So that challenge of being subject and the battle of, of trying to understand how do I be subject to those things? And then there's the battle to rise above all of those feelings and serve well anyway, knowing that we're serving God. And Peter talks about that, doesn't he? Be good contributors to society. Be good contributors to the city. Serve well. So a life as exiles that's characterised by submission and serving. You are God's people, the church, and that has implications, Peter wants them to know. 
Now, this probably chafed some of them and probably annoyed some of them, um, was difficult for them. And I guess given the last year and a half, and particularly even right now where we are in Melbourne, that can be really applicable for us too, can't it? You know, things like lockdowns, rules that, that don't seem to make a whole lot of sense or seem to be different all the time, masks, you know, not being able to meet together, not understanding whether that's a, a good thing or not a good thing or whether we should submit to that or not, and the inconsistent application of laws that we see sometimes. Um, there's so much that could get us chafed when we have to think about that as well. All sorts of thoughts and questions come up amongst a plethora of information, so much information, so many opinions, ideas and theories, um, perceived injustices. How do we, as exiles, like Peter's audience, not in the majority, how do we best display the glory of God um, as individuals, but as God's people together as a church? How do we best display God's glory even when it's tough? even when it costs, when it costs my opinion, perhaps my security, when it starts to encounter my fears or my misgivings. You see, they were servants, slaves, it says in NIV, but we're not, or are we? We're free, right? Yet, could injustice or sacrifice in our lives, however that looks, could that somehow cause people to glorify God? Could us living through injustice or being sacrificial, could that somehow cause people to glorify God? Is rebellion, direct rebellion or subversive rebellion or quiet rebellion, is that sometimes valid for us as God's people? Or is submission and surrender and obedience is that maybe a tool for God to bring glory to himself? Is the way we serve, even when it's hard, a witness to God's goodness and a witness to God's way? So many questions. And I'm guessing we all have them sometimes. I had many in preparing for this. And I'm not going to answer them all here this morning. But let's see if we can get a little bit of direction, some direction, by seeing how Peter addresses God's people, the church. That church was, those five churches were struggling. And I think we would have to admit that they were struggling even more than we are. Let's see if we can understand some of the context. Peter covers two major areas. He said his intro, he says, I want you to live honourable lives. I want you to uh, live such good lives that people will glorify God. And he gives them two contexts. He talks about submission to authority and why and serving well, giving your best even when it's hard and why. In verses 13 to 17, he has that whole section about obeying authorities, whether that's the emperor, which was the supreme authority, or whether that was a local judge or a lawgiver or a law enforcer. In fact, he says, every human institution. So he kind of starts by sort of itemising, but then just says, look, every human institution. Because this will silence the ignorant. What does that mean? How would that silence the ignorant? 
Who are the ignorant and how is that going to silence them if you do that? Well, verse 16 is, is a bit of a clue as to why Peter needs to say this to them. And verse 16 says, Live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. You see, a lie had crept in amongst the new followers. Uh, these were men, mostly Gentile followers. A lie had crept in that because they were now free spiritually, so no longer bound to all the rules of their former religions and, and the things that they used to follow, the idols and the, uh, the, the ways that the other religions that they used to follow, they're no longer bound to those former religions and rules, but they began to feel that this now, this freedom now extended to social, legal and national laws, particularly if they didn't feel that those laws were just. All the while proclaiming that they were followers of Jesus, this new way, all the way saying we are, this, we are the church, we are, these, we are followers of Jesus. So this wasn't a great witness. And the Romans and the Gentiles who weren't converted weren't too impressed with this Jesus or this way. And so they ridiculed Jesus and they ridiculed the gospel. And that's why Peter says in verse 15, we need to silence the ignorant, silence the ridicule. That's why Peter said what he said, you're free in verse 16, you know, live as people who are free, but don't use your freedom as a cover-up for evil. So what are they supposed to do, though? Remember, they're supposed to declare the excellencies of God. They're supposed to be defending God's reputation, making him great, making the gospel attractive. And not only if they feel like it, not only if it suits their new way or the way that they think that everybody else should live, that they've been convicted to live. And you might wonder, well, why do they have to do this? You know, why is this so important? And verse 13 is a bit of a key there. If you have a look at verse 13, Peter says he starts off with this whole submission thing by saying, be subject for the Lord's sake to every human institution, not for your own sake. Don't be subject to the institution for your own sake so that you'll look good or so that you'll have an easy path or, or that, you know, maybe one day they'll say, oh, you're great because you believe in Jesus. It's for God's sake. It's for his fame. Remember, you're his possession. The way that they will respond or they're called to respond to authority or the way that they do respond to authority will reflect directly on the Lord. So for them to disobey the authorities because maybe they thought the authorities weren't quite as enlightened as them or they knew that the authorities didn't have the same allegiance to Jesus that they did or perhaps they began to feel that they were a little better now because they knew Jesus and they, were, they, they, they felt a little bit better than the authorities. Peter says this is no excuse for disobedience, no excuse for even anarchy, which happened if you read some of the accounts. There was anarchy that was happening and the church was beginning, elements of the church were beginning to rise up and cause anarchy, rebellion, riling each other up, pushing their convictions on other followers even, was not only reflecting bad on God to the authorities or to the Roman Empire, but it was also causing division in the church, which is likewise a bad reflection of God to each other. 
Now, this wasn't doing much to proclaim the excellencies. And anecdotally, it was very much hindering the desire for some in the church, some of the followers of the way, to seek legitimacy for mercy and outreach work. That was totally cut off because of the reputation that some had caused. Now, we know that it wasn't always easy. We know that it wasn't always just what they had to endure. It wasn't always costless for them to obey. Yet Peter, and he says that in our scripture, Peter even sees these authorities, these ungodly authorities, as sent. And he says in verse 14, he says, or to governors as sent by him. He sees the authorities as sent, established by God, if you like, even though they're ungodly. So how do we see this as God's people? Because we are God's people as well. We may not be in the provinces of, uh, in a Roman province, we may not be under the enormous pressure that they were under, but how do we see this as God's people? How do we make sure that we respond to authorities in such a way that doesn't do harm to declaring his excellencies? What does submission, obedience, subservience, and honour look like for us today? That can be tough. Do we need to check our hearts here? Can we sometimes perhaps feel just a little bit better or more enlightened that we actually know more, that, that we're smarter, that, you know, they don't know what we know that, that God has revealed to us? Can, can we sometimes as Christians elevate ourselves a little? You know, we... Things like, well, as Christians, we don't fill in the gap. Or as Christians, we think, fill in the gap. Or as followers of Jesus, we'd never fill in the gap. Now, a little note here. I know that this is jumping in everyone's mind when we talk about submission to authorities, and it jumped into my mind too. This is not a discussion on when or at what point we can or we should disobey authority. That's the thin edge of the wedge, where we often go sometimes, or sometimes we go there, and I do that, to feel a little bit justified in, in being a little bit rebellious, whether I actually do it or whether I just say it and, and talk like that. We try to interpret, um, and that's a human tendency, we try to interpret um, the Bible or, or things to help us to figure out whether we can actually rebel. Now, Peter doesn't address this here because they are nowhere near that point. Make no mistake, Peter knew what it was like to disobey authority, to directly disobey. Do you remember Peter and John? He was the, the one of the two that said, well, we have to disobey you, he said to the governor, because if you say that we can't talk about Jesus, we are going to disobey that command. So Peter knew about disobedience when it actually went contrary to Scripture. But they're nowhere near that point. They knew about Daniel, but they were nowhere near that. Peter's focus here is on how our obedience, how our behaviour in a world that does not honour God, in authorities and laws that don't honour God, how, they can, how our submission to those can best cause God to get glory. How does our relationship with and response to authority advance the cause of the kingdom? When you ask that question, there's a whole lot that it makes you think about. 
How does it cause the kingdom to be attractive to those that don't follow Christ yet? And better still, how does it cause the kingdom to be attractive to those that are even anti-Christian, which we know we're often suffering under already now, where there is, a, there is an anti-Christian push? How could the gospel be attractive to them? They're the ignorant. They're the people that are ridiculing. They're the ones that Peter is talking about. How do we honour everyone, as it says in verse 17? Especially when authorities and governments have values that don't come within a cooey of mine or ours. They're so far separated, we, we can't reconcile their values and their ethics with ours. Our governments, our lawmakers are not Christian. Their values and their laws do not honour godly values. In fact, quite opposite, quite the opposite sometimes. So what do we do? How do we speak of them? How do we speak of their ways to each other and to the outside? How do people hear us speaking about leaders, rulers, governments, whatever leadership we're under? Now, I'm perhaps like many of you, I don't always find this easy. And currently, it's really hard. You know, as I said, we've got the lockdown. We've got businesses that are suffering that, that, that really seems unjust, families that are struggling, um, mixed ideas, um, fears of conspiracies, the decisions the governments make and, and the flow-on effects can even offend me. They can cause me pain and, and they can have an effect on my life as well. They can cost me. You know, I can ask, do I trust them? Should I trust them? Can I trust them? Do I trust them at all? So what do we do? What do we say? How do we react when we, when we read some of this stuff? Because this is what matters. And this is what Peter's talking about. Now, just a note here, and I put it in read on my own notes, rebellion and disobedience is built into the human heart. And I need to recognise that. We need to recognise that. And you can see that straight away when kids, you know, if you're kids or if you've seen kids where they test the boundaries, built in a, a rebellion, disobedience, mistrust, it's built into the human heart. And it's a result of sin in our lives. We don't naturally give up our will. Because it's counter our nature. We have this will and it must find its expression. And even knowing this, as Christians, we know this. Even knowing this should give us fair warning to how we respond to things, to, to evaluating whether our response is good or right. So in answer to the question, what do we do or say or how do we react? This is my personal understanding and conviction in light of this. And I've written this down. This is what I've come to in the last week or so. I believe that the authorities we have are also sent by God. And as one of God's chosen people, I am called to play my part in obeying them completely. Where it doesn't cause me to violate the word of God or directly contravene scripture, which is rare. Even if it costs me or those around me, even if it's hard, First, for the sake of the gospel, and then also for the sake of my fellow man, Christian and non-Christian. That's my other statement. I could probably change it next week. 
Do I always do this well? I wrote it down and I sound really good, don't I? Do I always do this well? Or even a bit well? No, I don't. Because it's counter my nature as well. But I'm convicted that I need to. My behaviour and attitude will and do have an effect on others. And it does have an effect on my kingdom witness. I am also a sojourner and an exile. We are, you are. And we're not in the majority, we're not in the majority. Albeit that our message is more powerful than any earthly one. We are not in the majority. But we live with the knowledge that justice will be done. Sin is beaten. And our hope is secure. Remember, that's what Peter wanted to remind them of that right at the very start and remind us of that as well. So this means that, that, I, that we, we all have to make decisions daily, sometimes more than once a day, both personally and as God's people corporately. We have to make decisions about how we view uh, leadership or laws or governments. We have to make decisions about how we talk about them, how we act within the laws of our land. Laws, uh, many laws that will and do challenge us. You know, I can go back in the last couple of years and we've, we've had discussions about same-sex marriage, conversion therapy, medical ethics, uh, education, COVID-19, vaccinations, all of that sort of stuff. We have to make lots of decisions about how we respond to authority around us in those areas. Now, I don't have all the answers, but we always need to continually evaluate. But I do believe that how we answer and respond each time will display who our Saviour is. You know, and it's a bit risky, but I, I noticed on our discussion page the discussion about churches meeting or not meeting, and, um, and I know that this is probably a risky area to come, come into. And I know that in the US last year, a number of churches um, decided to meet in contravention of their, their local laws. And I'm not going to comment on that because I feel like there's probably other things at play that the church has come under there from, from their leadership than, than here yet. You know, I, people that know me know that the last thing I want to do is do church like this. We came into here yesterday to do a test and everything, and I was saying to those that here, so my heart sank when I realised we were going back to this. There's nothing more than I want to do than is to be with everybody uh, and not speak like this. However, I believe that right now as churches, we need to respect the rules. So how do we respond to churches? And um, it's no secret it's been in the news. The church in Narry Warren who decided to, to meet in contravention of the law. How do I feel about that? I feel like we're not there yet. I don't feel like that did God's fame any, uh, any good. I don't feel like that made the gospel look good. We might talk about how the authorities uh, disproportionately handled them, and that might be true, but they were challenged, and we need to, re we need to respect authority. We're not in some long-term lockdown. We have not yet been in a case, in, in a place, we're not yet in a place where our government is clamping down on churches in all sorts of areas, which is the case in some countries. I think in this case, we need to learn to obey the authorities. And it's hard. I know that people won't agree with me. 
but I understand that Peter is encouraging them to make God look good. And part of submission is part of that. Moving on to something easier, Peter's next point is perhaps not as confronting, but it is just as important, serving well. You know, he talks about servants in the ESV, in the NIV, slaves, a little bit of history there. Anyone that was not a Roman was technically a servant or a slave. So that could have been a doctor, that could have been a lawyer, that could have been a a carpenter, it could have been anybody in society. If you weren't a Roman, if you weren't an official Roman, you were considered a servant, which meant that you were basically seen as a tool to use. If you were a lawyer, if you were a doctor, you were a tool to be used. Your opinion didn't count. You had no legal status or legal rights. Um, You couldn't uh, argue for good treatment or, or, or just treatment or anything like that. Um, It was just the way it was. Culturally, we find that really hard, but that was the way it was, and that was the system that they operate under. So we're not talking about slaves or servants as we might think of them in perhaps a couple of hundred years ago in, um, in, in the US or even in some countries still now. We're talking about, Peter's actually talking about, we could say workers or employees. Like I mentioned above, some of the followers of the new way, some of the followers of Jesus thought they were now above their employer. Imagine you are enlightened, you're someone of the way your employer isn't. So now you feel just a little bit better than your employer. So you could be indignant at their treatment if they didn't treat you well. Um, You could be indignant if they were an employer that wasn't of the way, but there were also stories of employers that were that had become believers of Jesus and by virtue of where they are in society, they employed somebody. And so the employee took advantage of the fact that they were a believer of the way. There were some rebel groups that were set up to abolish the age-old system, the cultural system of servants and slavery, workers' rights, etc. Ring any bells? I'm not sure they were called the CFMEU back then, but the same sort of system. And some of them even felt that Peter should have encouraged this. One writer writes, and I'll, I'll, something I read this week, and, and have a listen to this. Some were puzzled that Peter never pleaded for the abolition of slavery or even said in so many words that it was wrong. The reason was simple. To have encouraged the slaves to rise against their masters would have been a way to speedy disaster. Remember, the Romans were strong. There had been such revolts before. And they'd always been quickly and savagely crushed. However, in any event, such a teaching would merely have gained for Christianity the reputation of being a subversionary religion, which would not have helped. So here again, God's people, the church was at risk of not looking like a good contributor to society. And God was beginning to be, by the Romans, God was beginning to be seen as a society and a system Wrecker, which we all know in our hearts, we wouldn't use the word wrecker, changer is probably better. We all know in our hearts that's what God wants to do, but it wasn't endearing them or drawing them into the kingdom. Not a great witness. And Peter says that this is not right. In verse 18, he says, Servants, be subject to your masters with all respect, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the unjust. Wonder if we 
put that in modern day language and sent that to all of our unions. I wonder how that would go. I'm not saying unions are always wrong, by the way. We're to serve as though those we're serving, whether that's our employer or even in a voluntary setting, we're to serve as if they're God, as if we're serving God. In fact, we are serving God. As Remember, he's going to be the one that gets the glory when we do the right thing. So we are serving God. As God's people, we are the best, most reliable employees or volunteers. Not because our boss is good, not because he pays us well, but because ultimately we're serving God and his call in our lives and our work life, our volunteer life. And that's just another facet, another context for us to serve God. The way we work, the way we talk about our work, the way we talk about our work givers actually matters. So you know those, those um, tea room talks where we gossip or we bag out the bosses or at, you know when we're having a drink with people at a party, we're bagging out this boss and we're bagging out this company um, or those talks where we cause dissent or we revile. Those are things that Peter says we shouldn't be doing. Our service to those we work for and to those that see us working will reflect on who we say we believe in and what we say we stand for. God's fame and the grace of the gospel, no less, is at stake, according to Peter. And sometimes if we suffer at the hand of our bosses, non-Christian or Christian bosses, well, we're in good company, as Peter goes on to say, because our example in all this, and he finishes up with that, doesn't he? Our example in all this submission or serving, our example is Christ himself. In verse 21, at the second half of verse 21, he says, because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example, leaving behind something for us to follow. An example is something for you and me to follow. Christ was unjustly treated. He was illegally executed. When he, when he was reviled, he didn't return it. He suffered for us. In our situation, we may suspect a conspiracy. Well, Jesus suffered a guaranteed conspiracy. And yet, we were a greater cause than his comfort, than his safety, than being right, even than his whole life. And to this, Peter says, to this, you, we, are called, are also called to suffer at times for a greater cause. He is our example. What Peter te was teaching them was just as counterintuitive or countercultural to them as it probably is to us sometimes. Yet there's a secret here for us as God's people to advance the kingdom in these two ways, submission and diligent service. In these ways, us, God's people, will be able to point to a different way, a better way, a way that attracts others to Christ by making them look great and worth following. After all, that's our call, isn't it? I recognise this is tough, and particularly in these current times, and submission is really hard when emotion and fears and, and all sorts of things get in the way. 
But I do believe that I personally, that we need to evaluate always, allow the Holy Spirit to check our hearts and remember that we're called to a greater cause. Peter ends reminding them and us of the truth, as he often does in his letter to them. And I'm going to read those last two verses for you, 24 and 25. Have a look with me. He's talking about Christ. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you've been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. This is a truth for us too. Remember Peter said a little while ago in, 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 back in the start of chapter 2, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, now you have. Praise God, we have received mercy. And this is what we want for everyone that crosses our path, everyone that sees us, everyone that hears us, everyone that experiences us. That's what we want for them, that once they were not a people, but they will be God's people. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, we want to thank you for your word whilst recognising that sometimes it takes a bit of work and, a, and, and heartfelt mental gymnastics to figure out how to apply them. Holy Spirit, I thank you. We thank you that that's why we have you, that you will shine the light on our hearts in areas that we need to be enlightened, that you would remind us of the cause for which we were saved too and saved for. That you remind us that we are God's people, not to just enjoy being built together, although that's a magnificent gift. But they were, we were called to be your people, God's people, the church, so that we would declare your excellencies, God, to the world. And declaring that might be by, by word, it might be by our actions, it might be by our submission, it might be by the way we serve, but, Lord, that I pray that we would never, ever be in a place where we damage your reputation, that we would always be the, the ones that sweep the way clear for hearts that don't know you, for hearts that even don't want to know you, that are against you, to be softened, to come to know who you are. Lord, give us wisdom in these times. Give us understanding. Give us patience and love for each other in unity as we serve together as a body. Lord, we thank you. Um, Jesus, that, that as we sit here this morning or we stand or whatever we're doing, we're recipients of an amazing grace that saved us and given us an, a, a wonderful hope, a living hope for an inheritance that's ours. And we share that together and we give you thanks and praise for that in Jesus' name. Amen.